Well, please take a seat and let's uh, come to God in prayer once again now. Let's pray together. Father, we've just sung that your statutes, Lord, are wonderful. And we pray that as we come before your law this morning, that you would help us to see how good it is and help us to use the law in the right way. Help us to respond to it rightly. Help us to do so in repentance and faith, trusting in Jesus for our salvation. And then by the strength of the Spirit, living in obedience to all that you've commanded us. Father, we pray for your help in these things now. Help us to obey you from the heart. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if I can ask you please to take your Bible and open it to the book of 1 Timothy and chapter 1, those verses we read earlier on. A couple of weeks ago, we kicked off this new sermon series looking at this wonderful letter. And we looked just at the first seven verses, which really show to us the context in which this letter was written and sent. There's Timothy, young Timothy. He's the minister of the church in the cosmopolitan city of Ephesus. He's been sent there by the Apostle Paul because the church in Ephesus is going through a difficult trial. Some teachers have got into the church in Ephesus and they are seeking to drag people away from the true gospel. And in verses 3 to 7, as we saw last time, Paul describes this teaching to us. He says, firstly, its content is false. So rather than the true gospel, the gospel of grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord, these teachers are teaching different doctrine, which includes myths and endless genealogies. And secondly, the effect of that teaching, as we saw, was fruitlessness. Rather than the stewardship from God and love issuing from a, a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith, this teaching diverts people into speculations and vain discussions, fruitless things. And then thirdly, the false teachers themselves are fools, says Paul. Uh, maybe you remember from last time that there is one particular area in which their foolishness is very evident. And that is the way in which they handle the law, God's law. So Paul says they desire to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now I said it in passing last time, that how a Bible teacher handles the law of God is very often an indicator of whether they really are a decent and faithful Bible teacher or not. What do they do with God's law? How do they teach it? How do they apply it? Uh, do they treat it legalistically? Uh, as if these are the things you've got to do to try and earn your way into God's good books, like a, a ladder that you have to climb to reach God. Uh, 
Do they apply the law of God inappropriately? That is, they, they call people to submit to laws that are now fulfilled in Jesus. Do they add to God's law? Do they put extra made-up rules on top of God's law, rules that are actually found absolutely nowhere in Scripture, and therefore they're like a latter-day Pharisee? Or do they just cast aside God's law? Because after all, if you've got grace, who needs law? You see, don't you, how someone handles the law of God goes a very long way to telling you what kind of teacher they really are. Don't just take my word for it. Here's one of the Puritans, Samuel Bolton. He says, handling the law properly is the greatest knot in the practical part of divinity. And also here's John Newton on the same topic. He says, ignorance of the nature and design of the law is at the bottom of most religious mistakes. Most religious mistakes, says John Newton, come from not understanding how to read and how to apply God's law. And that's why the Apostle Paul, having just talked about how foolish these false teachers are in how they handle God's law, He then includes this little paragraph, verses 8 to 11, where he explains helpfully for us the right way to handle the law, or as he puts it, the lawful use of the law. And the very first thing that he says is that the law is good. The law is good. Now, given how complicated and sometimes controversial God's law can be, sometimes people just want to forget about God's law. Just think about grace. Never think about the law. There are many Christians who are like that. They live their Christian lives never wanting to think about law, only wanting to think about grace. And therefore, as soon as God's law is ever mentioned, alarm bells start ringing in their head and their response is to say, don't be so legalistic talking about the law of God. We're, we're saved by grace, not by law. So let's not get ourselves tied up in thou shalt nots. And they, they treat the law as if it's really a bad thing, something unpleasant, something irrelevant, something that we should avoid. But I want to say to you that if that is your response to the law, then you're missing out. Paul says the law is good. In Romans 7, he he goes further than that. He, He says the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And think about what the psalmist says of God's law in Psalm 19, words we've thought about already in our service. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. And in keeping them, there is great reward. That's the first thing 
to remember this morning simply the law is good. And then there's this caveat, isn't there, at the end of verse 8. If one uses it lawfully. And so Paul is saying, if you use the law unlawfully, you can do enormous damage with it. Just like those false teachers in Ephesus were doing. The law is good, but you have to use the law in the right way for it to be good for you. So, here's the key question this morning. How do you use the law lawfully? God's commands, uh, summarized in the Ten Commandments, his, his moral law. How do we use that law lawfully? And there are basically three different uses of God's moral law. I remember when I was studying, um, one of the professors, I don't remember who it was now, but one of the professors who was teaching us gave us three little words. And he said, these three words will sum up for you the, the three different uses of God's moral law. And all these years later, I, I've never forgotten, never forgotten those three words. And I find them extremely helpful in terms of understanding how to use the law of God lawfully. So I want to speak about these three words this morning. They, they are as follows. Curb, mirror, and guide. Curb, mirror, and guide. And as we're going to see, all three of those uses of the law are in Paul's mind as he writes these verses. So here's the first of those three words. The law is a curb. You know what a, a curb is for. When you're driving along in your car, there will often be a curb on either side of the road. And the curb is there to keep you generally on the right track. Now, of course, the curb doesn't transform you into being a brilliant driver. You may be a brilliant driver or you may not be. But that's not what the curb does. The curb does just enough to keep you pretty much on the right track. And so if you're driving along and your wheel hits against the curb, you get this uncomfortable jolt. You realize that you need to readjust quickly. You need to get back on track. Or to use a similar kind of picture, imagine that you're going temp in bowling. And you'll know that there is a gutter on each side of the lane. And if you don't bowl straight, then sooner or later that ball is going to end up in the gutter. But you know that you can ask for the barriers to be put up to prevent the ball going into the gutter. And the barriers act as a curb. They don't transform you into being a brilliant bowler. You may be a brilliant bowler or you may not be. But that's not what the barriers do. They keep the ball pretty much on the right track. And this, you see, is the first use of God's law. The law as a curb. We sometimes call it the, the civil use of God's law. That God's law stands there as a warning and a, a restraint against evil behavior. When a society shapes their civil laws around the standards of God's law, it then acts as a curb. Society is kept pretty much on track because the right curbs are firmly in place. And when people in that society act in a deviant way, they hit up against the curb of the law 
and they get a, a sudden uncomfortable jolt. And hopefully that will be enough for them to realize they need to readjust how they're living. They need to get back on track. So of course one of the reasons, isn't it, why it is so deeply concerning to see a society such as the one we live in today where there is the stated intention of casting aside what God's law says when it comes to matters such as marriage and abortion. And you see, what that is doing is removing the God-given curb from society. If you take the curb away from the, the high street, all that will result is that people will get hurt and people will get killed. And when a society removes the curb of God's law from surrounding them. That is what will happen in the end. People will be hurt. People will be killed, even in the womb. And at the start of verse 9, Paul tells us, doesn't he, why we need the law like this as a, a curb. He says, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient and, and so on. Now, don't misunderstand Paul there. He's not saying, now, as Christians, we don't really need the law because we're just, but it's those nasty unbelievers who need the law. No, he's saying that, that all of us actually need God's law because all of us, by nature, are sinners, and sin is lawlessness. Sin is rebelling against God, the lawgiver. Sin is living by our own standards instead. Even if you're a Christian, you are, as Luther put it, simultaneously justified and a sinner still. We still have those sinful tendencies within us. And the law is good for us as well because we are still prone to lawlessness. John Stott says, all law is designed for those whose natural tendency is not to keep it, but to break it. It is only because as fallen human beings we have a natural tendency to lawlessness that we need the law at all. Paul says to the Galatians, the law was added because of transgressions. The law is for the lawless. It's true for all laws, isn't it? We have speed limits because some people drive too fast. We have civil rights because some people are racist. The law is for the lawless. And when God's law is applied to a society like that, as a, a civil use of the law, it acts as a curb against lawless behavior within society. Now, as you've probably figured out already, with, with this first use of the law, it does absolutely nothing to transform the person on the inside. The curb on the roadside doesn't transform you into being a, a brilliant driver. Uh, the barriers at the bowling alley don't transform you into being a, a brilliant bowler. And in a similar way, the civil use of God's law don't transform the citizens into godly people. That's not what this use of the law is about. Uh, the law as a curb is simply there to keep society pretty much on track, warning about punishment and restraining evil behavior. And for that inner change, we need to look elsewhere. And that's what we come to in the second and third uses of the law. So think of it in these terms. The first use of the law applies to society externally. 
but with the, the second and third uses of the law, the law then touches the heart and, and shapes the life. So here's the, the second use of the law, the law as a mirror. As we were thinking about with the children earlier on, the law as a mirror. And I wonder what greeted you this morning when you got up and you looked in the bathroom mirror. I can only speak for myself, of course, but it's not a, a pretty sight. The furrowed brow, the messy hair, the, uh, the bags under the eyes, the unshaven face... The mirror doesn't tell any lies to us, does it? The mirror tells it like it is, warts and all. And you see, this is the second use of God's moral law. The law is a mirror. You might be familiar with James chapter 1. He speaks of God's law in, in this language, doesn't he? He says, but be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. And you see, when we look at God's law, when we see what God says in his word, his law, it tells us things like they really are. It shows us God's perfect standards because his law is, in the first place, a perfect reflection of his perfect character. The God who is holy, who is righteous, who is pure, who is good, who is unchangeable. And the law as a mirror doesn't just teach us what God is really like, as he is reflected in that law, but as well as that, the law makes us look at our own reflection. And the law teaches us what we're really like. That the law, you see, is like a, a teacher teaching us what God's really like and what we're really like. And, you know, if we stay away from looking into God's law too closely, if we, we stay away from reading God's word too much and just don't think about his standards, then very soon we can start to kid ourselves into thinking that we're pretty decent people. Especially if we only compare ourselves to the worst kinds of people out in the world. And we start to, to feel pretty pleased with ourselves, don't we? Haven't I done well? I've not been in trouble with the police. I've got a nice family. I've got an honest job. Aren't I quite the moral upstanding person? Haven't I done well? And then you look into the mirror of God's law, his perfect standards, and it teaches you, doesn't it? the vast difference between what God is really like in his moral perfection and what you're really like and what I'm really like in our sinfulness. And that's what Paul is doing here, isn't it? In this list of sins that he, he includes there in verses 9 and 10. You might have noticed that that list of sins is very loosely based around the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are the summary of God's moral law. And Paul wants to show that as sinful people, we are those who break all ten of these Ten Commandments. Now the first six items in Paul's list are all to do with our relationship to God, how we relate to him. And that's what the first four of the Ten Commandments are all about. Paul says we're lawless, casting aside what God's law says. We're disobedient, stubbornly refusing to live by God's commands. We're ungodly, 
We lack reverence for the true God. We're sinners, that is, we, we break his rules. We're unholy and profane. We mistreat sacred things. We're people who sin in terms of our relationship to God. But that's only one dimension of our sinful behavior. As well as that, we, we sin in terms of our relationship with other people, those around us. And the rest of Paul's list roughly follows the rest of the Ten Commandments. Those who strike their fathers and mothers break the Fifth Commandment. Murderers break the Sixth Commandment. The sexually immoral and men who practice homosexuality, that breaks the Seventh Commandment. Enslavers, that means those who kidnap people, steal people and force them into slavery, break the Eighth Commandment. Liars and perjurers break the Ninth Commandment. This is what the law of God in its second use as a mirror does. It shows us what we're really like, warts and all. It tells it like it is. We are lawbreakers by nature. We've broken every commandment. We might not have broken every commandment to the same extent, but we've broken every commandment. We've sinned in our relationship to God and in our relationship to other people. And by teaching us this, the law as a mirror shows us that our only hope, therefore, is in Christ. Luther says this, the law of God is a mighty hammer to crush the self-righteousness of human beings, for it shows them their sin, so that by the recognition of sin, they may be humbled, frightened, and worn down, and so may long for grace and long for Christ. You see, the law as a mirror shows us the ugliness of our sin. It teaches us that we need Jesus. And when we look to Jesus, we see that he is the one who fulfilled the law perfectly. He fulfilled the law firstly by obeying all of its precepts. Again, as we were reminded earlier on in our service, Jesus was born under the law. And he lived under the law perfectly. Every one of the Ten Commandments, as well as every other law of God, Jesus obeyed. And he did so because we haven't. He did it for us, in our place. And he fulfilled the law, secondly, by then suffering all of its penalty. He went to the cross. He took upon himself the condemnation of God's law for our breaking of it. And when a person trusts in Jesus, all of this is given to them. They're forgiven of being a lawbreaker because Jesus suffered the law's penalty in their place. And not only that, but also they are accepted by God even as one who has kept the law perfectly because Jesus obeyed the law's precepts in their place. Paul says to the Galatians, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Well, let me ask you, is that what you've learned as you look at the law of God? Have you looked into God's law like a mirror and, and seen something of what God is like reflected there in his moral perfection? And also seeing what you're really like, that you are by nature a lawbreaker, guilty before God's law. And so you've fled to Jesus, trusting, trusting only in him 
trusting in what he has done so that you can be forgiven and you can be accepted by God. When you use God's law as a mirror, that is what it teaches you. God is righteous. You're a sinner. And only in Jesus can you be forgiven and accepted. So go to him and trust in him. And then there's one more use of the law that Paul highlights here, and that is the law as a guide, or we we might say the law as a map, or to use a very modern alternative, the law as a sat-nav. If you're driving along in your car and you want to know the right way to go, you might get the map out or you might type it into the the sat-nav, and that will show you the, the right way to go. It will guide you. And in a similar way, after the law has done its job as a mirror, and after you've come to Jesus in repentance and faith, the question is, well, what now? How do you now live as someone who is forgiven and accepted by God? What's the right way to go? How can you know that? And the answer is, very simply, go and look at the law again. Uh, Only this time you're looking looking at it as a map or a guide as well. You don't stop using the law as a mirror when you become a Christian. You still need to know all that the law teaches you about who God is and who you are and your need of Christ. But now you start using God's law as a map as well. It guides you now in the right way for you to go. And so do you see that there is this very intriguing dynamic between God's law and God's gospel? And that is that the the law of God as a mirror sends you to the gospel. And the gospel sends you back to the law as a map or a guide. Do you see how they, they work together? The law and the gospel are not enemies, they're friends. This is how Ralph Erskine he was a, an 18th century Scottish preacher, described, described in very poetic terms this dynamic between the law and the gospel. He says, when once the fiery law of God has chased me to the gospel road, that's the second use as a, as a mirror, then back into the holy law, most kindly gospel grace will draw. That's the third use as a map, a guide. And again, in in the words of Samuel Bolton, one of the Puritans, the law sends us to the gospel that we may be justified. And the gospel sends us to the law again to inquire what is our duty in being justified. And I want you to see how this relationship between the law of God and the gospel of God is worked out by Paul here. Notice that in verses 8, 9, and 10, he's been talking all about the law. And then in verse 11, seamlessly, he he starts talking about the gospel. And notice the connection between the two. He says all these standards of the law that he's mentioned are in accordance with the gospel. In accordance with the gospel. Do you see he's saying what God's law commands of us is exactly what God's gospel requires of us in terms of how we live as Christians. And of course we should add it is only in the power of the Holy Spirit that we're able to live now in obedience to God's law. 
we try and obey God's law in our own strength, we'll never get anywhere. The law just becomes an impossible burden that crushes us. But when we come to Jesus, he gives us his Holy Spirit who lives in us and empowers us just as he empowered Christ himself to obey the law. And what the Spirit did in Christ, he then gets to work doing in us as well. He gives us that same strength and those new desires to live in new obedience before God. Paul says to the Romans, God, the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And so with hearts indwelt by the spirit of Christ himself, with hearts overflowing with gratitude for what Jesus has done for us. It now becomes a delight for us to live our lives pleasing God, obeying his law, looking to that law as the guide for how we live. This, you see, is the lawful use of the law. It is a curb which restrains our sinful behavior. It is a mirror that shows us our need of Christ and drives us to him. And it's a map which then guides us in new obedience before God. The law's good, isn't it? Let's pray together. praise you because you are the God who has given us his law. We thank you because your law is good and we acknowledge that we need it because we're people who are by nature lawless, who sin and rebel against you. And we pray that we would use your law properly, just as Paul shows us in these verses, the lawful use of the law. And help us never, even for a moment, to think that your your law is like a ladder which we can climb up and reach you with. The scripture says if we rely on works of the law, we're under a curse. Because we fail time and time again and we deserve your punishment. But we thank you that your law is a curb, warning and restraining evil behavior. And we pray particularly at this crucial time for us as a country that the curb of your law would not be removed, especially in relation to abortion legislation. We pray that your law, which protects human life, would continue to curb society in the future. We thank you for the mirror. It teaches us what you are like in your perfection. It teaches us what we're like in our sinfulness. And help us to learn what the law teaches us and therefore to trust in Jesus who obeyed the law's precept and suffered the law's penalty so that we can be forgiven, we can be accepted. And then as those who are forgiven and accepted, help us to keep looking to your good law as our guide to show us the right way to go in living a life that is pleasing to you. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, who gives us both the desire and the ability to do this. 
Lead us in your paths, we pray. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.